I am Tovacito. I believe our lives should be happy, healthy, and abundant. And I believe it's our job to get us there. Every week, I will have inspiring, educational, and fun conversations that will help you live your very best life. Welcome to The Remedy. I am so happy about my next episode. Today, I am talking with a plastic surgeon named Dr. Michael Lee. Um, Dr. Michael Lee came highly recommended by a dear friend of mine named Amy, who actually works with Dr. Lee. And uh, she was telling me that I absolutely had to have him on uh, to talk about what he does, how he does it, and, um, and just give us all the information we need to know when it's time to get tucked and pulled <laughs> and time to look better and feel better. So um, we live in Dallas, Texas, and Dr. Lee practices in Dallas, Texas. So just what is your title? What are all the letters after your name? <laughs> what, do they, what do they mean? Uh, tell us what you do and where you do it. Well, Tova, first I'd just like to say um, thank you for having me on. I'm uh, excited to be here and maybe provide a little bit of um, education for your uh, listeners. So my practice is here in Dallas. Um, we're actually located in the southern part of uh, Highland Park. And uh, I've been back here in Dallas now about two years practicing. Before that, I practiced for three years in Shreveport, Louisiana. So I'm originally from Louisiana. You grew up in Louisiana. I did. Small town, um, less than 2,000 people. Oh. So yeah. Was there a stoplight in your town? Well, it, it blinked. Um, <laughs> That's it, funny. <laughs> yeah, so uh, my, my first experience in the big city, I realized that there's actually, you know, not just blinking lights, but <laughs> ones that stop. And so, and you have to pay attention to them as well. So that was, a, that was an awakening. That's really funny. So where did you go to school? Where did you go to college? So I went to college at Louisiana Tech, and uh, that's in North Louisiana, Ruston. And then, oh, I know Rustin. Do you? Yeah, Rustin. You've been there. I've never been to Rustin, but uh, I know people who are from Rustin. It's a it's a great little town, and I had a blast. And uh, yeah, and I often pass back through there visiting family. So, but I went to college there, and then moved to New Orleans to LSU. Mm -hmm. Did my medical school training there. I finished that in two thousand and five, and then I moved to Dallas, mm -hmm. where I did two different residencies. So the first was ear, nose, and throat, or otolaryngology. And, what? Uh, What's that word? Yeah, it's long. And if you say the the actual, like the full-length term is otorhinolaryngology, head and neck surgery. Oh. And uh, yeah, so it, it wins the award for the most exhaustive <laughs> title in all of medicine. But So I did that, uh, which was five years. When I finished, then I stayed at UT Southwestern, which is where I was at, and did three more years of plastic surgery. So Now, when you were at LSU, did you know you wanted to eventually go into plastic surgery? I had the idea in my mind. I wasn't certain. Mm -hmm. um, there were a few different things that I, I really liked ENT a lot. Um, still today kind of miss it a little bit. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I knew I was creative and I and I knew plastic surgery was kind of a creative specialty. So I felt a pull in that direction, but I wasn't quite sure which where I would end up, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, so then 
after finishing all of my training, um, then I moved back to Louisiana practice for three years and then two years ago moved back here to Dallas and opened up a practice and have been uh, working hard ever since. And so what, where, where do you specialize? Do you do all types of plastic surgery? So I, there's a couple of different areas. I only do aesthetic plastic surgery. So plastic surgery in general is extremely broad. Mm-hmm. Everything from craniofacial, which a lot of people are familiar with, cleft lips, palates, mm-hmm. to burns. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of plastic surgery work that goes into burns, to hand surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, so hand surgery is plastic surgery? It's either, most hand surgeons are either a plastic surgeon or they're an orthopedic surgeon. Okay. Um, so there's just, and then a lot of reconstruction, different areas of reconstruction are mostly done by plastic surgeons, but then there's aesthetics. So I focus on aesthetics. So aesthetics, aesthetic, aesthetics, meaning how we look, what, what is that? What is, how would you define that? Yeah. Changing the appearance. Okay. Um, and so I primarily have a facelift practice and that's because I, was trained by a really well-known, um, actually internationally known, uh, facelift surgeon, Dr. Fritz Barton. So I took he over. practiced here in he, Dallas. Yes. Okay. And uh, he retired a few years back. He had trained me or had a major part in my training. And then when I moved back to Dallas, after having been in practice for a while, he actually spent an additional year with me doing a lot of facelifts because he had a very busy facelift practice. And with my background in ENT and head and neck surgery and um, sort of that specialized area, it made sense. He did a he did a pretty unique operation, and um, you know I saw a lot of his patients when I was in Louisiana practicing, and they just I saw a lot of Dallas facelift patients actually, and I, I felt like his were the best. Mm-hmm. So when I came back, I I kind of sought that out, and he spent time with me and taught me the technique. So I do mostly that. I do. A fair amount of noses because of my ENT background. Mm-hmm. Like a nose job. Well, a rhinoplasty, yes. <laughs> Are you going to correct all? Yes, <laughs> I will. You should. You the, should. The academician in me will correct every term that you say. That's, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then, you know, the practice I was in in Shreveport, which is the Wall Center for Plastic Surgery, Dr. Simeon Wall Jr. Uh, developed a a technique for liposuction called safe liposuction and safe is simply an acronym for the different steps. But I, years before I even joined that practice, he came to speak in um, Dallas at the Dallas cosmetic symposium. And I was there as a resident and I can remember watching his results. And I thought this guy's got to be photoshopping because these just look too dramatic. Mm. Well, he wasn't photoshopping them. And, um, he was just that good. Well, yes. Yeah, he's a very talented surgeon. And he's, since that time, uh, traveled the globe teaching and, and showing people how to do it. So I joined that practice. And his his wife, both of them are Stanford-trained plastic surgeons, but his wife, Holly, who's one of the favorite people, um, or one of my favorite people in the world, mm. uh, both very talented and had a, a very uh, busy breast and body or liposuction, body contour practice. So I spent three years with them and and learned a lot of the techniques and stuff of how to do it. And it's interesting. Like I was in, I went around the world um, maybe a year and a half ago watching different facelift surgeons. And I can remember being in, in Ghent, Belgium with two pretty well-known facelift surgeons there. And 
and they were doing a little bit of fat grafting and they said, well, Dr. Lee, how do you like to do your fat grafting? And I said, well, I was in practice with Simeon Wall and so I, I do safe lipo. And they said, oh yeah, we, that's what we use. So, you know, from Shreveport, Louisiana to <laughs> Ghent, Belgium, um, it's, it's a technique that works and, and um, in my hands, I get the best results. So to answer your question, I, I do mostly face, but I also do, I think in Dallas, a fair amount of just breast and, and lipo because of that particular experience. And it's a, it can really change someone's life for the better. It makes it fun for me. So I imagine, I don't, I don't know where Dallas ranks in the whole plastic surgery in the world of like how prevalent it is here compared to other places. Is it where, where do, where are we on, on the globe as far as people who are getting plastic surgery? Yes. Yeah, we're up there, you know, um, statistics wise, I, I couldn't quote you. I know historically New York and Dallas were the two big aesthetic surgery locations and, um, I'm surprised LA. Yeah, well, it's going to come. I'll get to that in just a minute. But but historically, that wasn't the case. And uh, it's a fairly young specialty compared to other medical specialties. But New York was a major hub for it. And Dallas, a lot of the Dallas surgeons of the last generation actually trained at NYU. Mm. So that was my mentor, Fritz Barton. That was his contemporary, Sam Hamra. Um, And the list goes on. The a lot of those surgeons from New York branched also to the West Coast, so you you did have some um, branching out and growth. But when I say the two main um, places being Dallas and New York, mostly mostly that comes from who published, who presented, who developed new techniques. Okay. You didn't see a lot of that from the West Coast, and that's what I mean by that. There's good surgeons uh, there. Okay. Okay, okay. But I think in the early years, and what I would call the second generation of plastic surgery, most of it was Dallas and New York. So Dallas has always been at the the um, height mm-hmm. of progress in terms of what we do. John Tebbets is another big name that was here in town, and uh, Bill Adams, who took over initially for him, has uh, really carried that torch very well. So when we... When we go to meetings, both national and international, Dallas is very much represented, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think has produced some of the best plastic surgery in the last fifty years, and I think that continues to hold today. But I do think the West Coast is making a push. I've got a lot of friends out there doing great work, and uh, and so it it's more popular. It's growing in popularity. More people are comfortable with plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. My experience is people in Dallas, most of them have it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting. Some people can't wait to to talk about it. And some people are very conservative Mm -hmm. about it. And that's where, you know, I don't know who's, how each person is in terms of their, how vocal they are about their procedure. But my job's to make sure that I use discretion, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if I see patients out and about, well, all the time when I see them out and about, I, I have to wait till they acknowledge me. I don't acknowledge them. It's so. like a therapist. Pretty much. <laughs> pretty like much. Seeing your therapist out. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> do, do not go over and say hello. <laughs> that is so funny. So in, uh, I agree with you that at least in the community that you practice in, and it sounds like we both run around and plastic surgery is, I mean, most of my friends have had some something. Something done, yes. I would call it a boob job. You would call it a... I would call it a breast augmentation <laughs> since, since the other word is not used um, in the medical community. <laughs> well, it's used in my community. I know, I know. Trust me. Um, I so, hear all kinds of things. Well, and now I'm in my 40s, so a lot of my friends have had a breast augmentation. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, And then now we're talking about, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, will you get your eyes done? Will you get right. your face? Like, right. and, um, and I'm sure there's a whole other community, as you said. That I mean, I've never heard of anybody who has lipo, even though I'm sure that people well, have. Most, most people get lipo as part of a tummy tuck. Mm. Uh, some people get it with their breast surgery. So that you know, if they're getting a breast augmentation or a breast lift with an augmentation, and there's a little bit of fat, under the bra fat that sort of mm. hangs over. Yeah. So that's, you, you'll lipo that area, not uncommonly. So people I didn't just. know that was an option. I think people don't like to say as frequently that they're getting liposuction because the, the prevailing thought, I think, in the general public is, oh, if you just worked out harder, you'll lose that fat, right? right. But a lot of times it's not the volume of fat, it's where it's at. Okay. Will you help? I, I, lo- I love hearing about that. So yeah. I. I agree because, I mean, as I've gotten older, where fat has moved and gone in my body is different. Oh, it's so frustrating. Yeah. Yes. And why I, does it change? And and how, why does it go to places that just like the fat, like you said, above like the bra? Yeah. Like, why do, why are, why are we getting that in our 40s and I'm sure 50s? And I don't even know where it goes in your 60s. I don't, I'm not yeah, looking forward we'll to fi- that. We'll find out when we get there. <laughs> you know, so when you're, Shortly after you're born, you have um, an X amount of fat cells. Mm -hmm. You won't gain any more fat cells, and you won't really lose them unless you do something to have them removed. And uh, what happens as you gain weight is you just, those fat cells that are there get bigger. Mm -hmm. So you'll see some people who are, say even my daughter, who's about to be 13, she'll have little areas that she'll collect fat more so than other areas, mm-hmm. right? And you mm-hmm. see this in the general population. Some people can be really thin and have a double chin You're right? just because that's where they collect fat. Some women gain a lot of fat in their breast when they gain weight, lose mm-hmm. it in their breast. Mm-hmm. So everybody's different. The, I wish that happened to me. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's funny. You know, women with large breasts want smaller breasts and vice versa. So, yeah. um, But what happens is, as we age, we lose elastin, and elastin is that component to the skin that keeps everything uh, closer to our core. Mm. So that's the reason a lot of times after someone has a child, the tissue of their abdomen is stretched, mm-hmm. and it doesn't bounce back like mm-hmm. it would if you gained and lost weight in youth. And when that happens, you don't get that um, sort of compression of the the fat that you do have in a certain area. So take the love handles. Mm-hmm. If you look at someone who's 18 or 19, they'll still have fat in the love handle area, mm-hmm. but it doesn't hang over the belt, right? right? Then whenever you turn 35, it starts to hang over the belt. At least that was my experience. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the reason you see a difference mm-hmm. overall. Because the elasticity 
Yes, our... the elasticity to hold it into place. And, and our eyes recognize it. We don't know. We can't explain it scientifically as the as a layperson, but we see it. We recognize right. it. And yeah. um, so the other thing is our metabolism slows down. And um, What age does that start to happen? You know, I'm... It, I wouldn't dare to venture into giving those specifics, but mm-hmm. I think it's different for everybody, and okay. it's a gradual process. Some, a lot of people that you talk to say, boy, when I turned 30 or when I turned 40, mm-hmm. this started to happen. And, you know, this is a time normally when you're having kids and everything else, and so the gym is sort of takes a back seat a lot of times. But, but it's unique, I think, for each individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's as that happens and you gain more weight, and you're losing the elasticity of your skin, you start to notice these changes that are not great. Right. And uh, I, you know, I was yesterday trying on some clothes and it just frustrates me to no end because it's like uh, there'll be a little area, you know, my love handle or whatever that I can see in a shirt. And it's like, that's the only little area that bothers me, but that bothers me. Mm -hmm. And if I could liposuction myself, I would. (laughs) It would have been done years ago. But I'm not that brave. Can't you trade out? Don't you know someone that you do? You do take care of his lipo. He'll do. Yours? You know, I I think it. I probably could. I think it's hard to. You you just want to do it yourself, I guess. There are a few people okay. that I would trust, but uh, not not many. <laughs> that's funny. That's really funny. I just get a bigger size shirt. That's all that happens. <laughs> Which I think is. What most of us end up doing. Yeah. Yeah, we just so upsize. So when people come to you, and I know it's for all different things, but uh, I know the procedures are different, but is the overarching um, feeling about what they want for themselves the same? Are people looking? No, no. It's extremely variable. Um, as much as every human is different, right, what they see is important to them or the change that they want to pursue is just as unique. Mm. So my every consultation, if I'm seeing someone for a face or if I'm seeing someone for their breast, mm-hmm. my first thing is to hand them a mirror mm. and to say, tell me what you see and what you would like changed. Because I'm not there to make me happy, right? I'm happy when a patient's happy. Uh, that, that first step will direct the conversation. I don't just, this is my own personal preference on practicing, but, but I don't want to say, oh, you need this done or you need that done because mm-hmm. that, that sort of, in my mind, planning seeds, okay, well, they said I needed this done. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, I want to, I want to listen to them. I want to learn about the particular physical change that they're seeking and why it bothers them. Mm-hmm. And then once I've gathered all of that information, the next step is to educate them, right? Why does it look like this and what solutions do we have to fix it and what's that look like, both short-term and long-term? And then if that change is going to be influenced by another feature, say if we're doing, oh, yeah, so if, we're, if I'm changing the way someone's nose looks, then they need to know how that's going to interact with other facial features mm-hmm. and so forth. So then I educate them and then we just simply have a conversation about what's the best thing. And so that can go in different directions. And a lot of times people will say, you know, my family says I'm crazy and I don't want this done. I, I, did, I saw a girl yesterday, for, she was 16 or 17 years old, which is the age um, we wait until we do a rhinoplasty on a female. Mm. 
she goes, well, she's not, she traveled in town for her surgery and she heard about me through it, um, some other people, but, but I took her splint off of her nose and she saw her nose for the first time after surgery. And she said, oh, I think I'm going to cry. And then she started to cry and happy tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't share that story if it weren't, um, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I said, that's pretty normal. Mm. Like it's pretty normal because most and I see this in females and males, but people will look at a nose their whole life and say, this just doesn't look like it's supposed to be on my face. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes it's just, that's how it grew, but other times it may be trauma. Like you hit it when you were young mm-hmm. and then the nose started to grow and it, and it grew out of proportion to your other features. So whenever you can create that balance for somebody and they look in the mirror and they say, oh my gosh, for, and for the last X amount of years, this is the nose I thought I should have, and I didn't. Mm. It's pretty emotional, I and bet. it's pretty fun for me. I and I've, that's amazing. I've had women that um, come to mind, numerous ones that were in their 40s or 50s or even 60s, that we did that, and they think, oh, my gosh, for decades I've mm. been wanting this. So uh, That's you know, got to be incredibly profound. I mean, what an experience for you. Yeah. No. And every yeah. day, you know, to see the results of, of your hands, that's got to be, that's got to be incredible. It's fun for me and it's fun for the girls in my office. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think they get as much joy out of it as I do. For awesome. me, I'm always looking for what I could do better because I think that's how you're trained. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's no need to pat yourself on the back. The yeah. goal is to constantly be, to be the best. And so you're looking for uh, little things that you can improve upon, but but that's sort of like the level of the doctor being happy. I think that's it's actually I think out of reach because there is no perfect result, right. and um, but there is the quest for perfection. Yeah. And, and and that's that's, a, that's I want to go to that doctor. <laughs> I mean, I think that everybody wants to go to that doctor. I yeah, it's like being a human. You know, there is no there. Right, like, you should always be. Tr- right, I mean that's what this podcast is about like yeah we should always be striving to be a better version of ourselves yeah um so let me ask you you i i understand people crying um when they see the results right i would also imagine i mean as you were describing uh what people see when they look in the mirror uh, that has to be an emotional experience for them as well like before they ever have surgery. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, it's really because they're seeing everything that's wrong in them. Right, and and <clears throat> you know, uh, it's a really uncomfortable place. I think I wouldn't want to be disrobed in front of right. someone else. And even though it's medical, you're still you're still, still vulnerable, very, very right? vulnerable, right? And so I make it a point. To, to say, and sometimes I think it helps, and, and other times maybe not so much, but I just make the statement that nobody likes this. It's a, it's a normal feeling to be a little bit anxious before you disrobe. Or, yeah. Um, but I'm here to help you, mm-hmm. and I'm here to, to make your life better, and so this is just where we start. But mm-hmm. the person in the mirror is not going to be the same person after surgery. Mm-hmm. So that that is a unique and very... Um, special situation in the consultation because my job is not just to think medical but also the there's a little bit of psychology there to Absolutely. put somebody at ease and to 
and to relax them and to let them know that you're you're on their side. Mm-hmm. And um, that's also fun for me mm-hmm. because it's uh, it's unique. It's the doctor-patient relationship being created, which is fun. That mm-hmm. rapport, that trust, it's a it's a delicate thing, but but it's a great thing to take part in. Well, and I can't imagine anything <clears throat> scarier as a person coming into your office, especially with my face. Right. <laughs> you know, here's my face. Here's what I don't like about my face. And here's what I, I see and I'd like you to fix. I mean, that is, that has to be really, really, really scary for that person. So I, the, the way that you go about putting people at ease, I mean, just yeah. hearing that it would, would, would make me feel better just getting on your table, you know, and and put it, trusting you because that trust that they have to have, I can't even imagine that trust. Well, I, th- I think because of my situation, that with faces, that is less of a, in, it's less of a hold to climb, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, or less of an obstacle because since I took over for someone who did this for 40 years, most of the people that I, now I've been doing this now for, you know, um, we're about to go over to the two-year mark, but there was such a trust that came with his recommendation mm. and the fact that I had been groomed personally to do that operation. Mm-hmm. So patients would come in and say, well, Fritz Barton said, you're the new guy in Dallas to do faces, so I'm here. I've already put down my deposit and I'm ready to have surgery this date. I was amazed because that's not usually the case, um, but they trusted the technique. Mm-hmm. And to be quite frank, it's worth trusting. Mm. He's he's one of the most brilliant um, men in general that I've ever met, and he ranks at the top of the plastic surgery list. You know, he's he's published numerous um, articles throughout the years. He was chairman at UT Southwestern for 12 years. Uh, he's written his entire textbook on facial rejuvenation. So... It was more of that at first, uh, and now that I've been doing this for you know a while, I think that patients come in and say, "Oh yeah, well you did this." My friend's face here, my friend's face there. So I just, you know, I'm ready to sign up. And quite frankly, a lot of people come from around the country, mm-hmm. and so they'll actually uh, go ahead and book the surgery and everything without ever having met me, and or we'll do teleconference meetings, wow. and then they'll fly in, and I'll see them and. Uh, and then we'll do the surgery. So it's that's interesting. Yeah. I think the I think the what they want to know with face, and you're talking about different age groups and and different personalities. But I I think most people when they go to get facial surgery done, they figured out research and quality. Mm. They're at that place in life where they're not really going to be fooled mm. most of the time. Mm. And so you know if they if they can go with the research that say, this doctor has operated on this group of my friends and they all look good. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. really all they needed to know. That's all I would, I would yeah. want to know. Yeah, that's the most important thing. Right. So they don't even need, you know, we have pictures, but they don't even need to see pictures because mm-hmm. they see the people. So for that reason, we even on my website, we don't have any face pictures on my website or noses just for privacy reasons. Right. But right. Um, we show those in clinic. So. Let me ask you a question about um, when people... When people look at themselves initially in that mirror, you, when you give them the mirror and you say, tell me what you see, tell me what you want to change and all that, what if, what if you don't see what they see? 
So that that can happen. Um, that's typically diagnosed as body dysmorphic mm-hmm. um, disorder, which I think it's it, it's prevalent in plastic surgery. It it hasn't been prevalent in my practice. I've had one patient throughout the going on my six year practice that that I think had that, and um, well, one patient that I operated on, and I didn't see it on the front end. And I thought she had a beautiful result with one little small thing. And um, so that was a failure on my part to not diagnose that on the front end. If I see that in consultation, I don't operate on the patient. Mm. So, you know, I hear a lot of times people say, well, I just feel so bad for those people that get addicted to plastic surgery. I don't see those people. Mm. I there, there may be this constant desire for people to stay young or look attractive or healthy. These are people that work out all the time. They're very much aware of what they eat. Like, yeah, they want to they want to have a great life and they feel like those things contribute to their life. But they it's not like they come in saying, "Well, I had surgery last week. I'd like another one next <laughs> week." I don't see that, right? Mm-hmm. I see them come in and and they say, "Well, you know, I do have a little bit of fat here. Could you liposuction that and get this down?" And Normally, I won't operate on them right away if if I feel like uh, if I feel like it's not a huge thing. Mm-hmm. But I but I also have noticed in my career that I alluded to this earlier that you can think something's not a huge deal, mm-hmm. but to a patient it is. Right. So it may be a mole on their cheek, right? Mm-hmm. But that mole is a huge thing to them. So if mm-hmm. if what they're seeing, even if I don't think it's a huge deal. I may see them more than one time to make sure that it's well thought out. But if I think I can make them better, then I know physically it may not be a huge leap, but psychologically it may be. Mm-hmm. And the psychologic impact of our physical appearance is so intertwined with the quality of our life. That's what doesn't get, I think, enough attention. I love that. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> but, you know, I I think it's it's big with all the operations that we just discussed. But I think most of it, with faces, it's not as dramatic because people don't want to look dramatically different with the face. They just want to look better, right? Right. With a nose, most people coming in for a nose are usually not happy with a bump or a crooked, something to that effect. And that's psychologically been a big impact. So when you straighten it or fix that, it's it's a, a real game changer for that patient. Body contouring, likewise. I have women that I have done surgery on who says who say that, that they say, yeah, I've never been able to wear a dress like this, even when I was 18. Why? Because of their fat distribution. And now all of a sudden you've taken, you know, maybe they had a flat backside, but a lot of it was due to the love handle area or the muffin top area. And that's just an area where they collected fat. So you sculpt those patients in surgery. So maybe they have curves that they didn't have when they were 20 years younger. Those types of things are um, psychologically can have a huge impact mm-hmm. on an individual. Mm-hmm. And so I will see people where even their family members say, I, especially with young girls with rhinoplasty, mm-hmm. where they say that she didn't have a boyfriend, she didn't talk to any guy. It wasn't that she's any, I mean, she was a pretty girl before, right? right. It was the confidence factor. Right. She didn't want to talk to anybody because she had this or that, and it really held her back. Now, all of a sudden, that's fixed, and she's go, 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 and she's a completely different personality. Mm. And I'll just say in all of medicine, we do a lot of great things, but I don't feel that 
that's recognized for what it is in our community. And I think it's going to get more and more awareness, Mm -hmm. but that's what makes plastic surgery so much fun. Mm -hmm. And that's not what you're going to see on the front of People magazine, right? Right. To that point, why, why, I, I, you know, so many people have had plastic surgery. So many people want plastic surgery. Right. Some people said, I would never. And then they, I'm right. sure then you they see, make an appointment. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm sure there's that group of people because yeah. you can't see yourself. I mean, before I had children, before I gave birth to children, I said, I would never, you know, I would look at women right. who had, to use your term, breast augmentation, right. and I would think that they were vain and they were self-centered. I mean, this is judgmental, you know, 22-year-old Tova with right, right. with nothing wrong, wrong, right. in quotes, with my body. You know, nothing had happened to my body because I'd never had children. Right, I'd, you hadn't I'd, been through the process. Yeah, I hadn't been through anything. I hadn't aged it. Yeah. But... You know, life, age, children, all of that changes your body. And after I had children, and I, I know I speak for a lot of women out there, everything changed. My fat distribution changed. My the my breasts changed after I breastfed. I mean, right. everything changed. And so the end result was it. Ma- it did. It made me feel very insecure. The, because all of a sudden, my breasts were completely gone. My stomach was bigger, and every time I looked in the mirror, I hated it, yeah. you know? And even though I could cover things up and manipulate things with clothes, I didn't like it. Right. And so this thing that I said, I will never, you know, I, I called and I made an appointment. Right. And it, 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 it really does affect the way that you feel about yourself. And, you know, I... I'm. I am not a stripper. I'm not a slut. You know, and, and I'm actually a pastor. You know, and, right, right. And it wasn't so that I could show off my new huge boobs. It was so that I could look in the mirror, feel good about yourself, right? and and yeah. like what I saw. It's really that's really the catalyst for why most of us work out. It's. We, we'd like to think we work out to be healthy, but a lot of times it's because oh, we yeah. want to see the physical change. Oh, you know, yeah. it's interesting. As I get older, um, I you start to you start to backtrack on a lot of the statements you make it's when so you're young, true. right? It's so, so true. And you become less. I think mm-hmm. you become less judgmental because you realize you're just not as perfect as yeah. you think you are. Yeah. But um, thank God for those lessons. Yeah, I think the the biggest thing for me. Sort of relating to the statements that you were making is that we're humans. Mm-hmm. No two of us are alike, mm-hmm. right? And I tell my kids this all the time. You're unique. You're how God made you. He wanted you to be how you are. That doesn't mean that you don't do things to improve yourself, right? Right. right. He didn't make... My two children are very much different. One of them is introverted and, and academically um, uh, very blessed. The other one's actually very academically blessed too, but she's more extroverted and she's definitely more hyper. Um, so they're different, but they're both perfect in their own way. And But that doesn't mean that I just let them run whichever direction they want to go, right? So we want a constant. I want to constantly see them becoming more educated, becoming more well-rounded, and I want them to to grow as an individual. Um, 
I can think of plastic surgery being similar to that, just like what you said. A man and a woman come in to see me, a husband and a wife, and the husband says, I think she looks great. I don't, you know, I don't think she should do anything. And I have to make it very clear, we don't really care what you think, right? <laughs> so I love that. We, it's, I get it, and you should have that discussion before you come in, but I'm here to take care of the, my patient because mm-hmm. she, she went through having these babies. Mm-hmm. She's the one who took a hit in terms of her tissue. She's the one who struggles to put on clothes and get things to fit. Not you, right? Mm-hmm. So she had the babies. Now it's her turn. And um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And just like I was talking with my children about constantly improving and enjoying their quality of life, it's the same way with, with plastic surgery. There, You can't exercise enough for that's going to move a nipple back up into the correct position. Mm-hmm. You can't yeah. exercise enough that's going to get rid of a bunch of loose skin. And so if, if you look across the spectrum of medicine, many of the procedures that we do are not life-saving. Mm. Many of them are quality-of-life procedures, yeah. taking tonsils out of a child, putting ear tubes in a child. Why do we do that? Most of the time, it's done for the sake of convenience. What are the criteria, or at least back when I trained, what are the criteria for taking out the tonsils? Well, it was how many infections you have per year. Why? Because then they start to miss school, and it interferes with their their, you know education and the parents are put out and all this stuff. So like there's a lot of things in medicine that we do to improve the quality of one's life. So why would plastic surgery be any different? Mm -hmm. It's just that it deals with the aesthetics of it, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so as far as people that maybe, you know, some people say they'll never have it. Some people say they will have it. Some people can't wait to have it. You know, it's that's the beauty of the human being. We're all different, and that's why it really boils down to that individual. What are their goals? Are their motives correct? Can I help them? And if all of those things line up, then there's the operation, and then there's the beautiful result, and then there's the beautiful response and the improvement in that patient's quality of life. You have a great job. (laughs) I mean, you really do. I feel blessed. I feel extremely blessed. It's a great job. And um, I'm extremely passionate about it. Uh, you know, I wanted to be an artist when I was a kid. I, I grew up really poor and uh, in the middle of nowhere <laughs> in a really nice uh, single wide. And um, But I wanted to be an artist when I was a kid. I did a lot of drawings on, at school, yearbooks and that kind of stuff. And my dad said, who was a, worked at the paper mill, he said, uh, artists don't make money until they die. And so you need to do something that's going to make money and provide for your family. And so I think I, I think I accomplished that, but I almost feel like I cheated the system. Like I get to make the money and I get to be an artist. Yeah, you're right? such an artist for sure. And um, and then I get to make a positive impact. I was at Royal Blue Sunday after church with my son, and he's ten. And we were talking about what uh, I asked him. I said, well, "What do you think you're going to do when you grow up?" And he's thought about it. And he said, "You know, I I feel like I'm I'm pretty good at coding, so I could be a coder." And so I said, well, what are the, you know, he's into Fortnite, which is the big game now mm-hmm. and on. So well, would you do something with that? And who are the people involved with that or a gamer? I, I get the terms mixed up. <laughs> but ultimately he said, yeah, there's this guy Fortnite um, on Fortnite Ninja and he makes, you know, millions of dollars a year. And so the, the academician in me was like, well, how do you know he makes millions of dollars a year? And so I like to make him think and the wheels were turning. But ultimately towards the end of the conversation, I said, okay, so that's the financial part. What kind of contribution are you making to society? Do you feel that as a gamer, you would be making a positive impact 
in the lives of others. And on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most impact, where would you rate it? And he thought about it. Now, he was eating one of those uh, royal blue maple with bacon donuts, which um, <laughs> was a bit of a distraction. But, but he came back and he said, you know, it probably a 5. He said, maybe I should do something that's going to be more impactful. And now he's 10, and I don't pressure him at all to, to do what I do. Matter of fact, I hope he does something much, much greater. But um, but I wanted him to think about it beyond the monetary reward of yeah. whatever he chooses. Yeah. We what just, a great conversation. It's That's fun. A great I mean, conversation. you know, being a parent, it's just <laughs> the most incredible thing. So it is. So t- to that point, you something about what you just said there triggered a question in me about. Uh, the quality of life for for these people. Now, I would say that this is a privilege. You know, having plastic right. surgery is very much a privilege, and um, it's for the privileged. I mean, it seems like you because I'm sure insurance isn't going to pay for my eyes to be done when I'm 65 or 55. And so, how do you how do you reconcile? Um, because it seems like you're a thoughtful person and there are people who are in a low socioeconomic um, uh, and you grew up that way. And so how do, if you can't afford you know, to get your nipple straight, but you're, right. you really want, what, a, what about those people? How yeah. do you reconcile that? Well, I don't look at it as being the fault of plastic surgery. I think plastic surgeons would say, hey, let insurance pay for it and we'll do it all day long, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a really, it's a really complex situation. Mm-hmm. And there are times where – well, let me back up. I think if you're running a business, you can only have so much philanthropy – Right. Before you can't pay your bills. Right. And it is it is a very expensive business to run. Um, I mean, I travel the world speaking and teaching, and, and a lot of these things aren't covered. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I didn't pay you to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I don't, I don't feel like. I, I'm going to write a book, um, and it's going to be called How to Turn 40 with No Money. <laughs> and it's going to talk about all the years of education that I did. But, um, yeah, so I think that. I think it is for people that can afford it. I think that is a shame. And I do think there's a role for it in all people. But that's just kind of where, as a society, we are, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly am not saying it because I think it's your fault or, you know, it's <laughs> not. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not your fault. Yeah. And I, I do believe that the system yeah. is broken. And I think that's where I was yeah. going is, um, you know, but that's, that's the case with, with our world. It is. And, you know, I did a uh, three weeks ago, I went to Belize with Leap Global Missions, which is here in Dallas. It's a Dallas based um, operation. And I worked with Grant Gillen, who's an oculoplastics guy here in Dallas and one of the finest doctors that I know. But we operated, so we landed in Belize Friday afternoon. We saw patients till after midnight. That that Friday evening, and then we operated seven in the morning until ten p.m. Saturday and Sunday. And then we got back on a plane Monday and came wow. and came to Dallas. Um, I was where we were operating was about an hour or hour and a half from the airport, and I can remember that that Monday driving across the the rural routes of Belize, and the bus was bouncing up and down, and 
I had all of this on my, I had a busy, I had several facelifts the next week and it was going to be really busy and I was going to see patients well into the evenings. And I looked out and I can remember just seeing the sun and, and the fields and the wind blowing. And it just, I knew this is my first surgical mission trip. I did some mission stuff in college, but, uh, but I was like, there's just something so rewarding about doing something and not being paid for it. Mm-hmm. And and for that trip, most of what we were doing was reconstruction. But but I also did some noses there on people that, uh, you know, you could argue it either way, reconstruction versus aesthetic. Or maybe I make them a functional nose that also looks really good. But... But that was a lot of fun, and I think there's definitely probably a role for that in plastic surgery. I do think you have to be really careful, and it's, uh, you know, if you just offered free plastic surgery, it would be, that that could be trouble in the States. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it, I'd want to go to that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that may not work out so well, but, but maybe one day mm-hmm. it will be covered, you know, um, that the American healthcare system right now is just in a, it's a question mark, right? So who knows? Well, uh, I mean, that would be, it would be, I've been, I've been enough, I've been to Belize, I've been to enough places to see, and, and even just here in Dallas, I mean, yeah. to know that it's just. Plenty of need. Yeah, yeah. There's just a lot of need. So, but kudos to you for doing that. I bet you loved it. No, I did. And I, I um, you know, I, pl- I spent two months when I was in college in Kazakhstan and it was the first time I'd ever been on an airplane. I told you I grew up pretty rural. So my first time on an airplane um there was several connecting flights but i got off the airport in almaty kazakhstan and there were german shepherds and people in fatigues and machine guns and i thought well this is not louisiana <laughs> or at least not the part of louisiana that i grew up in and uh you know i didn't i had a great i spent the whole summer there and mm-hmm. it was it was eye-opening to get that worldly experience but i didn't have anything i could really do other than teach some english and we worked in some orphanages and we did manual labor but Something about going back and fixing people, technically, what few people can do, I think, was probably one of the most rewarding experiences of my life, outside of being a father. So I can't wait to go back. Honestly, on the way back, even on that bus, I thought to myself, you know, um, I could I could just live out here and do this. Mm. And uh, But I would have... I'd eat so much good food, then I'd have to, I would have to lipo myself. So. <laughs> okay, so Dr. Lee, to wrap up, if somebody is considering um, plastic surgery, if somebody is looking at themselves and, um, like you said, looking in the mirror and, and not liking something, um, I believe deeply, and that's one of the reasons that I've had you on, there should be no shame in admitting you know, you're not vain, you're not selfish, you're not, um, if you look at something about yourself that you want to change. Um, but I think a lot of people outside of like looking at someone who else who's had their eyes done or their face done and thought, God, that looks really good. Where, where do you, where would somebody start? Where would somebody start? Well, I, I think the first thing you want to do is become educated on the topic. And so say you're looking at your your breast, and you you feel like they they could be improved aesthetically speaking. Mm-hmm. You you're not saying, "Hey, I am going to have surgery." Mm. 
I would research the procedure a little bit, but be very much leery of what all you read online. Yeah, I can't even imagine. there's a world of bad information out there. Mm-hmm. But I would locate one, two, maybe three different plastic surgeons just to meet with, mm-hmm. right? And get a sense of what could be changed. Would it make you happy if it were changed to that degree? And would you be comfortable once you learn about the process of what you would go through, which a lot of times is not as much as people think it is. Mm-hmm. And you also have to be willing to accept the risk. I mean, there are risks with surgery. Granted, they're very low-risk operations in general. Um, I can think on one hand of the times when I've had an issue. You know, I always start That's out, reassuring. Well, it, yeah. But, you know, but I also spend a lot of time with patients beforehand. So it's mm-hmm. not that if you promise perfection, you know you won't deliver that. Mm-hmm. So... But, you know, issues where you had to, uh, which I would consider complication, we do have them. Everybody has them. If, mm-hmm. if they say they don't, they're not being honest. But but they are pretty safe procedures is my point. Mm-hmm. And once you're educated on that whole process, then you can continue to think it over. And if you decide you want to move forward with it, then you go back and you see whichever doctor that you felt mo- more comfortable with. But... Yeah, there's nothing wrong with gathering information, mm-hmm. and that's a lot better than just not seeking that out or reading a few things online and never going to actually see the doctor. You you you'll read some just wild things online, and uh, that's probably the last place. I yeah, would start. really, yeah, exactly. I mean, I just think there's bad. bad well, bad. anybody can post stuff, right? right. You know, I mean, <laughs> fake news, right? right. Um, it's right. Uh, it's. Uh, everywhere or whatever so well i so appreciate you coming i appreciate um i mean i appreciate you giving freedom to this conversation and to this topic that i think i mean i after after i had my breast done i i didn't want to tell anyone because it right it there i don't know why there was shame involved but you know i like you give us freedom to to explore that process and and um, even go through a procedure and and I love I mean just the feeling that I got listening to you watch your patients be on the other side of it is it's like I said I think you might have one of the best jobs <laughs> so <laughs> I, I love it I, I do love it and um, and I am grateful for the opportunity to be on this podcast wow with you thank you come back I will I will I'd love to okay thank you thank Dr. You. Lee thank you Toby.